Book Three, Chapter Two of the Late Mr. Jonathan Wild the Great. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. The Late Mr. Jonathan Wild the Great by Henry Fielding. Book Three, Chapter Two. A soliloquy of Hartfree's, full of low and base ideas, without a syllable of greatness. Being now alone, he sat some short time silent, and then burst forth into the following soliloquy. What shall I do? Shall I abandon myself to a dispirited despair, or fly in the face of the Almighty? Surely both are unworthy of a wise man, for what can be more vain than weakly to lament my fortune, if irretrievable, or if hope remains, to offend that being who can most strongly support it. But are my passions then voluntary? Am I so absolutely their master that I can resolve with myself? So far only will I grieve. Certainly no. Reason, however we flatter ourselves, hath not such despotic empire in our minds that it can, with imperial voice, hush all our sorrow in a moment. Where, then, is its use? For either it is an empty sound, and we are deceived in thinking we have reason, or it is given us to some end, and hath a part assigned it by the all-wise Creator. Why, what can its office be, other than justly to weigh the worth of all things, and to direct us to that perfection of human wisdom, which proportions our esteem of every object by its real merit, and prevents us from over or undervaluing whatever we hope for, we enjoy, or we lose. It doth not foolishly say to us, Be not glad, or be not sorry which would be as vain and idle as to bid the purling river cease to run, or the raging wind to blow. It prevents us only from exulting, like children, when we receive a toy, or lamenting when we are deprived of it. Suppose, then, I have lost the enjoyments of this world, and my expectation of future pleasure and profit is for ever disappointed, what relief can my reason afford? What, unless it can show me I had fixed my affections on a toy, that what I desired was not, by a wise man, eagerly to be affected, nor its loss violently deplored? For there are toys adapted to all ages, from the rattle to the throne, and perhaps the value of all is equal to their several possessors. For if the rattle pleases the ear of the infant, what can the flattery of syncophants give more to the prince? The latter is as far from examining into the reality and source of his pleasure as the former, for if they both did, they must both equally despise it. And surely, if we consider them seriously, and compare them together, we shall be forced to conclude all those pomps and pleasures of which men are so fond, 
and which, through so much danger and difficulty, with such violence and villainy, they pursue, to be as worthless trifles as any exposed to sale in a toy-shop. I have often noted my little girl viewing, with eager eyes, a jointed baby. I have remarked the pains and solicitations she hath used, till I have been prevailed on to indulge her with it. At her first obtaining it, what joy hath sparkled in her countenance, with what raptures hath she taken possession, but how little satisfaction hath she found in it, what pains to work out her amusement from it, its dress must be varied, the tinsel ornaments which first caught her eyes produce no longer pleasure, she endeavours to make it stand and walk in vain, and is constrained herself to supply it with conversation. In a day's time it is thrown by and neglected, and some less costly toy preferred to it. How like the situation of this child is that of every man! What difficulties in the pursuit of his desires! What inanity in the possession of most, and satiety in those which seem more real and substantial! The delights of most men are as childish and as superficial as that of my little girl. A feather or a fiddle are their pursuits and their pleasures through life, even to their ripest years. If such men may be said to attain any ripeness at all. But let us survey those whose understandings are of a more elevated and refined temper, how empty do they soon find the world of enjoyments worth their desire or attaining? How soon do they retreat to solitude and contemplation, to gardening and planting, and such rural amusements, where their trees and they enjoy the air and the sun in common, and both vegetate with very little difference between them? But suppose which neither truth nor wisdom will allow, we could admit something more valuable and substantial in these blessings, would not the uncertainty of their possession be alone sufficient to lower their price? How mean a tenure is that at the will of fortune, which chance, fraud, and rapine are every day so likely to deprive us of and often the more likely by how much the greater worth our possessions are of. Is it not to place our affections on a bubble in the water, or on a picture in the clouds? What madman would build a fine house, or frame a beautiful garden, on land in which he held so uncertain an interest? But, again, was all this less undeniable, did fortune, the lady of our manner, lease to us for our lives, of how little consideration must even this term appear. For, admitting that these pleasures were not liable to be torn from us, how certainly must we be torn from them? Perhaps to-morrow, nay, or even sooner, for, as the excellent poet says, where is to-morrow in the other world? 
to thousands this is true, and the reverse is to none. But if I have no further hope in this world, can I have none beyond it? Surely those laborious writers, who have taken such infinite pains to destroy or weaken all the proofs of futurity, have not so far succeeded as to exclude us from hope. That active principle in man, which with such boldness pushes us on through every labor and difficulty, to attain the most distant and most improbable event in this world, will not surely deny us a little flattering prospect of those beautiful mansions which, if they could be thought chimerical, must be allowed the loveliest which can entertain the eye of man, and to which the road, if we understand it rightly, appears to have so few thorns and briars in it, and to require so little labor and fatigue from those who shall pass through it, that its ways are truly said to be the ways of pleasantness, and all its paths to be those of peace. If the proofs of Christianity be as strong as I imagine them, surely enough may be deduced from that ground only to comfort and support the most miserable man in his affliction. And this I think my reason tells me, that if the professors and propagators of infidelity are in the right, the losses which death brings to the virtuous are not worth their lamenting. But if these are, as certainly they seem, in the wrong, the blessings it procures them are not sufficiently to be coveted and rejoiced at. On my own account, then, I have no cause for sorrow, but on my children's. Why, the same being to whose goodness and power I entrust my own happiness is likewise as able and as willing to procure theirs. Nor matters it what state of life is allotted for them, whether it be their fate to procure bread with their labor, or to eat it at the sweat of others. Perhaps, if we consider the case with proper attention, or resolve it with due sincerity, the former is much the sweeter. The hind may be more happy than the lord, for his desires are fewer, and those such as are attended with more hope and less fear. I will do my utmost to lay the foundations of my children's happiness. I will carefully avoid educating them in a station superior to their fortune, and, for the event, trust to that being in whom whoever rightly confides must be superior to all worldly sorrows. In this low manner did this poor wretch proceed to argue, till he had worked himself up into an enthusiasm which by degrees soon became invulnerable to every human attack, so that when Mr. Snap acquainted him with the return of the writ, and that he must carry him to Newgate, he received the message as Socrates did the news of the ship's arrival, and that he was to prepare for death.
End of Book 3, Chapter 2 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox